ESG invites you to look at the future and be prepared for that future in order to lower the risk of your company. Hi, you're listening to the International Risk Podcast. This podcast is for CEOs, board members, risk and compliance officers, security advisors, and anyone interested in improving operations. On this podcast, we hear from the traditional to the wacky, from renowned risk management experts to Red Bull daredevils, there is something to learn about the way we perceive, manage, and mitigate risk from all of our guests. Your host, Dominic Bowen, will ask the questions that you will want the answers to. If you know Dominic, then you know he is well acquainted with risk. His 20-year career has seen him successfully establish operations in some of the most complex environments around the world. Dominic has spent most of his career establishing large and successful operations in places like Haiti, Syria, Sudan, Iraq, Lebanon, Bangladesh, Pakistan and so many other high-risk and medium-risk locations. Joined by our excellent guests, he'll reveal innovative ideas on how you can ensure your organisation thrives in areas with high risk. Hi, I'm Dominic, the host of the International Risk Podcast. Today, we delve into the world of environmental, social and governance factors that are increasingly influencing the global business landscape. As the World Digest, the 28th UN Climate Change Conference, COP28 in Dubai, the conversation around sustainable business practices and the integration of ESG principles into corporate strategy has never been more pertinent. With a special focus on implications of COP28 and the evolving nature of international risk in this context, today's podcast will explore the opportunities and the challenges that lay ahead for businesses who are committed to ESG. Joining us on the International Risk Podcast today is Valentina Lira. She's an industrial engineer with a postgraduate degree in environmental economics from the University of California, Berkeley. Freshly returned from her time at COP28, Valentina brings invaluable insights into the intersection of business, sustainability, and international risk. Welcome to the podcast, Valentina. Hello, Dominic. Thank you very much for this invitation. Well, thanks very much for joining us. And thanks very much for joining us so soon after getting off a plane. We really appreciate your time today. I know, of course, of course. It is very interesting always sharing different points of view. So I'm happy to be here. And on Saturday, Valentina, the UN released a report at COP28 that nearly $7 trillion of public and private finance each year supports activities that directly harm the environment. That's about 30 times the amount spent on nature-based and environmentally friendly solutions each year. So with COP28 highlighting the critical role that businesses can play in climate action, how should companies be prioritizing their ESG strategies to align with the international climate goals that you and many others have been discussing at COP28? It's the key question, <laughs> because as you say in the beginning, ESG matters today more than ever before. And it's something that all the companies are today working on, but also today they are developing and trying to be more active regarding the environmental, social and governance issues of a company. So when we realize that for many, many years, the companies are used to work with the economical part of the sustainability. And today companies are learning how to incorporate 
environmental and social issues in their management because it's something that they haven't done during many, many times. So it is more natural for the companies to work on financial, but not in social or environmental topics. So that's why this is a learning process, something that the companies has to develop, something that they have to learn how to do. And it is not an easy process because you will find a lot of resistance and you will find a lot of different cultural topics inside different companies and also the local context. Because in some places, this is not as important as it is in some others. But for instance, in our case, because I am director of sustainability in Viña Conchaitoro today. So for us, has been a little different because we are a company that is located in Chile, but not only in Chile, but also Argentina and the U.S. And our main focus is to export wine. So we have been in contact with a lot of different markets, with a lot of different requirements from different consumers that have different maturity regarding sustainability. So that's why we have been able to incorporate that topics in a very, I would say, pioneer way, because we were in contact with those markets and we were aware of what they were doing or what they were requesting. So that's why we were able to realize that this is something that we must incorporate in all of our actions if we wanted to continue doing business all around the world. I'm really glad you raised that point, both the point that ESG matters today even more than ever, but also I'd like to hear more you expand on that and about your experience and how creating effective ESG compliance mechanisms can positively affect a company's risk profile. And also, I'm keen to hear what you've seen at your company and other companies about the role that culture plays when making environmental, social and governance decisions and about living and working in a responsible manner. I would say that in a company is really a key topic that for instance, the board in our case, or the high level management in a company should be engaged or should realize that this is something important to develop inside the company. But also that isn't the final point of the pyramid in the structure in the company, because the base is the people inside the company. And when you have all the employees and all the people inside that is working or developing together, or implementing together a sustainability strategy for a company is easier because there is a belief that the sustainability in a company is made by the sustainability department. And that is not true. Sustainability departments have to guide, have to, you know, show the way and maybe be always thinking in, you know, the future or the edge of the different topics. But it is not possible for a sustainability department to work on the complete company. You must do it with the people inside the company. So it's something that you do together with the whole organization. In, it is very important. It's a big part of the work that we do today as a sustainability department is to show the different departments how their work affects the sustainability of the company and how they can make that topic to be an opportunity for the company to not only look at the risk and sustainability, but also how can that risk be an opportunity at the same time. And I mean, for instance, the agricultural department, 
I am not a department that is going to say to the agricultural department how to make agriculture because they are the experts. What we can do together is to realize what is the climate risk for agriculture and what we can do in order to make that risk an opportunity for the agricultural department. But they will continue implementing. And I'll say that this is something that you have to do with all the departments because you have different risks. In every different department, you have every different risks. But they have to learn how to look at the sustainability image or as a sustainability aspect of the work that they are doing today. Yeah, I think your point about risks also being opportunities is also just so, so key, Valentina. And it's something I'm regularly saying to boards and executive teams that a lot of the things that you'll identify as risks are also opportunities to your business, depending on how you position yourself and depending on your agility and your ability to work with that. And given the multifaceted challenges and risks that we're currently seeing, including climate change, including the shift towards a more circular economy, Sadly, a growing inequality, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, war in Palestine, heightened tensions across the Indo-Pacific region, the need to balance economic objectives with societal needs. There really is a growing demand from investors, as well as regulators, consumers and employees that want to see companies manage their natural and their social capital more effectively, not just the financial capital, but also the social and natural capital and to do so within robust governance frameworks. With this increasing trend of investors wanting to integrate ESG factors into their investor decisions, how is ESG becoming more essential for companies to secure that capital? And perhaps, Valentina, I wonder if you can provide insights on how ESG considerations are shaping investor decisions. The idea here is that as you said, there are many investors today that are taking decisions looking at the ESG performance of the companies. And that is something that we have seen. We have seen, we're an open company in the stock market right here in Chile, and we have a lot of investors from different countries, not only Chilean investors. And it is used like a scan of the health of the company. Because today, companies don't have to consider only the money-making process, but also the social impact process. And because of that, you are a corporate citizen. And as a corporate citizen, you should be responsible of all of your actions and all of your responsibilities, not only social, but environmental, and also your taxes and all of your financial responsibilities as well. So... When you are a company that is actually addressing properly the ESG statements, you are being a more robust company because you are not only responsible, but also a company that is looking for progress and prosperity, not only for you, but also for your suppliers, for the people that works inside the company. And that commitment is something that you should address in a very responsible way. In our case, for instance, you know that in different countries, you have different regulations for different kinds of companies. Here in Chile, for instance, in 2021, we incorporated in our bylaws that the company has the objective not only to provide wellness to the shareholders, but also 
to look for the positive impact for the different stakeholders. And that is something that is written in our bylaws. It doesn't depend on the goodwill of the people that is in the administration during a period of time. It's something that we as a company has as a mandate for the different shareholders of the company that decided to include that commitment in the bylaws of Piña Contador. So it will be something that will continue in the future and not only something that we are doing today because today working on ESG is like, you know, popular. It's getting more and more popular and it's getting more and it's like a wave in which everyone wants to surf. It certainly is. I like that. It's a wave that everyone's wanting to serve. And certainly I see the same. As a management consultant working with some of Europe's largest companies, I'm definitely seeing that ESG performance is becoming integral to companies' resilience and their competitiveness. It really is a wave, I guess, is to use your analogy that you're either surfing or you're going to get knocked over by. It certainly is. Do you see, have you seen in your work, Valentina, a link or a relationship between companies with strong ESG performance and companies that also have strong long-term resilience and competitiveness? Do you think there's a link? Yes, absolutely. And it's something that I think is sometimes something that you are not looking for, but is something like is connected in a very natural way. Because when you are looking at the future, you are going to be prepared for the different scenarios that you might have in the future. And that is resilience because you have to be prepared or you will be prepared for different scenarios. It doesn't mean that you know everything that is going to happen. It means that you are going to be prepared for that scenarios in the future. Even if it is something that is totally unexpected, you will be more, I'll say, awake. You will be more awake. And that's why you will be more resilient because you will be more willing to change in order to adapt to the different scenarios that you might have in the future in a social, environmental or financial aspects. Because we have to remember always that this is business and you cannot take that important sentence out of the picture because as a company, we have to be profitable. And we have to generate a positive impact while being profitable. I'd love to hear a bit more about your time at COP28. There's already been a lot of discussion during and about some of the things being said at COP28 around climate financing. And I think the UAE's made some big announcements around climate financing funds and even around agricultural emissions. Are you able to share some insights and share some of your opinions on climate financing and even agricultural emissions? Climate financing, I think, is the way in which the world is trying to make like a compensation kind of mechanism because the more industrialized countries, they already are developed. And that was because they were able to produce many things, to create many things and to build many things in a time when carbon emissions were not a big topic. And what we are facing today is like a restriction for the less developed countries in order not to use that amount of energy or you have to build, but you have to consider some restrictions and you have to consider not to create your business with so many emissions. And that is something that is like a compensation, I would say, a compensation system. And I think it's good that something like that can happen because all of the different countries have the right to develop themselves and they have wellness 
for the people that live in those countries. But if we all want that development to be a clean development, we all need to put some part on that. And I think that this is the concept of, I would say, fair development and fair for the environment as well. Socially and environmentally fair, I would say. The thing is that when you are there and you see so many countries, and especially, I would say, Dominic, in Dubai. Dubai, it's an exciting city. Exciting. I have never been there before. So I didn't know what I was going to see or what I was going to know as a city. But when you are there, you see everything is new. It's an exciting city full of lights and full of cars. And you see a lot of people. I went to a mall one day. It was a huge mall. There was maybe all of the people from COP were there because it was full, totally crowded. And we were able to see the poles that are rare because consumption is not going to stop. You see that consumption is not going to stop. And you see that they are building more and more and more cities and buildings and roads and everything. So when you start thinking, is this going to be sustainable? When you are in a city that is the capital of COPE and everybody is buying things and many things and you see a lot of energy wasted and you see a lot of cars with fossil fuels circulating in the fossil fuel country of the world. It's kind of difficult to think that it will be easy because it's not going to be easy when you see the poles in a country like that. And I think that in this case, having a country that is very related with fossil fuels, I think it's a good idea in order to, you know, awake the necessity of having those countries inside this I would say crusade. But when you realize the rhythm of consumption and the way of life that they are having there, you think that maybe they will change to different kinds of energy when all the fossil fuels are used. It's very contradictory because the ideas for the future and what you see today is totally unconnected. It's really contradictory. Yeah, I liked your concepts about fair development and even your point just then about the contradictory nature of what you see in places like Dubai. And then I think a key part of that really is the climate financing. And it has been for all COPs, but it continues to be a key issue at COP28. And developing countries need financial resources as well as technology transfer and capacity buildings if they're going to be able to reduce emissions, if they're going to be able to adapt to climate change, if they're going to be able to address the losses and damages that we're already starting to see in many countries. And as such, it's, as you said, fair and reasonable that there is some sort of a provision and mobilisation of climate financing and that this is a key priority and is something that's raised at all the COPs. I believe in 2009, developed countries pledged to mobilize $100 billion annually from 2020 onwards, but we haven't seen that $100 billion actually mobilized yet, which is, of course, a source of frustration to countries that want to be more climate friendly, that want to adapt. And I think the failure to meet this target in a timely way really has had a negative impact on many negotiations at COP26, 27, and now during COP28. Do you think that we're likely to see this resolved? Are we likely to see a reasonable climate financing fund developed by 2024, by the next COP? It's going to be very challenging, I think, because 2024 is tomorrow. And if we don't move fast, I think 2024 is something that is too close 
in order to see some big change. And I think the difficulties of this is not because of the money itself. What I mean is that I see the difficulties are in what it represents to have a fund like this. And that's the key issue for me. Because when you accept to have a fund like this is when you accept the idea that the developed countries were the ones leading the way to start climate change because they were the first ones. They were developed and they were the first one, not the only ones, but the first one starting to do this industrial revolution using a lot of fossil fuel and energy in order to develop their countries. And today they have a very lifestyle because of that. And having a fund like that It's to accept that idea. And that's why I think is today the discussion, because many of the non-developed countries are saying that you cannot stop the development of the undeveloped countries because of carbon emissions, because we also have the right to be developed or to develop ourselves as countries. But having that kind of fund, it will be like revealing that this is true, that this is truly what happened. So that's why I think it's very difficult to have something like that. And it's not because of the money, it's because the meaning of having that. So that's why I think 2024 is maybe too soon. Maybe I'm not as optimistic as I should be, but I think that it's going to take a while. And when we look ahead, what trends do you foresee in the realm of ESG? And how might these trends shape the landscape for businesses in the coming years? And what should forward-thinking business leaders be considering now when they're looking at opportunities? Climate change absolutely will continue being the main driver for all the different discussions and environmental topics. But what I see is also that biodiversity is having today a key place in all of the business, not only agricultural business, like the ones that we are involved with, but also even very different kind of companies like financial funds, for instance, that are being requested to do something in biodiversity as well. So I think biodiversity is going to be a huge topic also because climate change is the first negative impact is in biodiversity. It's something that is going to continue growing. But also in the financial part, I see that many companies today will have to incorporate the idea of having a strategy to face the future regarding sustainability. Because when you have a strategy, you are able to prepare yourself for the future. And that is what investors are looking for. The security that you are prepared for the future is not something that you have everything solved for the future because nobody can do that. But again, how are you managing your risks inside the company in order to be prepared? Because no one knows what is going to happen in the future, but we can diminish the risk by being prepared for different scenarios. And when you are looking at the future, you are able to start visualizing what are the most probable scenarios and prepare with enough time to face that when it comes. And this is not only in environmental, but also in financial and social and all of the different topics. Because for instance, in our case, if you are a company that is using land for agriculture, and if you know that 
the city is growing and it's getting next to you, you will have a risk and you have to be prepared for that. And you have to see what is going to happen in 10, 20 years. The city will be all over, all around me, all around my vineyards. What should I do? Should I be prepared? Should I move? Should I change my techniques? Should I buy the land? Different options. But you will start preparing that future today. And that's the idea of the ESG principles. ESG invites you to look at the future and be prepared for that future in order to lower the risk of your company, environmental, social, and governance risks. Isn't that a great point that we should be doing in all areas of our business activities? Better forecasting, better looking at the future, considering different scenarios, and then positioning ourselves for success. But if ESG is the vehicle and the tool and the motivation we need to get business leaders doing that, then that's a fantastic thing. I'd just like to ask you one more question, Valentina, and that's about what risks you're most concerned about. When you look internationally, when you look around the world, what risks concern you the most? In the case of our business, I'll say the international trading because of the different regulations that the different markets might have. Because today what we are facing is that in different regions, different countries are making different regulations and they are not today like talking the same language. So it's going to be very difficult to be aware of all of the different regulations that are going to appear in the different countries. So I think that is something that is going to be very different from one country to another. Maybe taxes in different countries with different kind of taxes or environmental fees for products according to the CO2 content of the different products. I think this is being a topic that is going to affect the exchange of different goods in the different countries. And it's very uncertain because we don't have sort of a global regulation for that. And sometimes can be uh, barriers to get into some commercial areas. Well, thank you very much for highlighting that. And thank you very much for coming on the International Risk Podcast today, Valentina. It was really interesting to have the conversation with you. Thank you, Dominic. It was a very nice having this conversation and I hope we can see each other in the future. I look forward to that. Well, that was a great conversation with Valentina Lira, who's freshly returned from COP28 in Dubai. It was really great to hear Valentina's insights and thoughts on environmental, social and governance issues coming out of COP28 and for business leaders more globally. Today's podcast was coordinated and produced by Ben Lawson. I'm Dominic Bowen, host of the International Risk Podcast. We'll speak again next week. You've been listening to the International Risk Podcast hosted by Dominic Bowen. Please go to wherever you download your podcasts and give this podcast a five-star review. Your positive reviews on this podcast and subscribing to future downloads is critical for our success. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about this podcast. Consider if you know someone that would appreciate or benefit from today's conversation and send them this podcast right now. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for your fix of risk-related stories.